Yeah. Your mental matters. Mental matters. 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 Yo. Your mental matters ain't a simple pattern. We need to have a central chatter. Food for thought, grab a platter. My mental ain't for rental. I'm essential, man. It's simple. I'm a ripple in the rift, though. I don't wanna sink my ship, so gotta know your mental. Black life is hard. I don't resent though. Feelings really real. We should present those. Talk about it. You should know your mental matters. Alrighty, what up though, what everybody? Up, though? <laughs> <laughs> I try to stay in sync. You are that person I would not want in my work meetings because you would be sitting there not on mute, checking your mail and on Instagram. <laughs> and no, that's not true. I know the shortcut to cut my microphone off and to cut my microphone on. So okay, either way. Yep. Facts. That's me. <laughs> that's you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> We are at episode 48 of the Mental Matters Podcast, here to talk about man up properly for the culture when it comes to mental health, jerk chicken, all, all those type of things. And we are approaching 50 episodes, and the further we go, the more we need to reach out to the community to see who can help us help our Black men be better. And mm-hmm. because I am a stand of like really dope platforms and you know, brotherhood forms, if you will, and men talking openly about what they're going through. I found one of the perfect people to help us with a different avenue as we try to man up properly. So we have a special guest. <laughs> that was the most horrible blowhorn ever, but I'm going with it. They got the picture. I think it's okay. <laughs> 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 so... Would our esteemed colleague like to introduce herself to our community? Yes, uh, my name is Adria Moses. I'm a trauma-informed um, yoga and mindfulness practitioner here in the city of Detroit. Um, and I'm really happy and grateful to be here. Thank you guys for all the work that you're doing and and seeing me doing my work. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. I try to share every time I see it. I'm like, Another mindful man thing coming up. We about to share it. Oh, let's get it. Yeah. And you know, so can you kind of talk about what mindful men is? Because I've seen you doing this for a minute. And I'm just like, how did this even come about? Yeah, how did this come about? So going into quarantine, um, so just naturally, I was teaching at a yoga studio. Obviously, COVID happened and everything went indoors and i pivoted very like i pivoted the day i decided i wasn't going back to the studio and before lockdown happened i just pivoted and i just started teaching digitally and i realized i was cultivating space predominantly for brown and black women and they were coming out of nowhere you know i teach at a studio i don't own a studio so people come to practice with me but a lot of people in the space are patrons of the studio I teach at, right? So I'm kind of like starting from scratch, even though I've been teaching for four years. And I'm like, okay, there's, I, I see our brown and our black women, I see us, but I'm always, you know, thinking about all of us. And I just was kind of curious of like, the men are kind of quiet. Like what, I wonder what they're doing. This was like early on, maybe like two to three weeks into quarantine, I'm just like, I wonder what they're doing. And then in little pockets, I would hear like 
maybe one of my friends would call one of my guy friends and she'd be like, he's not doing good. He's not, he doesn't seem, he doesn't seem okay. And I'm like, hmm, okay, well, let's like, let's tap. Like I wanted to tap in with that. Like, I feel like you can't get through this alone. And also I think that there's a pressure on men that I'm very aware of that is, even when like the shittiest shit is happening, men have to just be pillars and they're not allowed to feel or express or be scared, you know, like, and then I was just curious about like my guy friends who are dads. Like, I know that they're worried about their kids. Some of my friends are, are dads and, but their kids aren't with them, you know? So I, I'm thinking of all these intersections and I just thought of like five of like, really like the five men closest to me that I knew would say yes right off the bat, no problem. And basically like what mindful men is, my, my friend asked me a great question the other day is just what makes a man mindful? And I thought it was a great question. And I just told him like, what makes a man mindful in terms of mindful men is his availability and his willingness to talk, period. Like, no matter what he shares, that's his business, that's his, his prerogative, but it's just his, the audacity. It takes vulnerability to get on a live with a woman and she's asking you how you feel. Yeah. That, takes, that takes guts to do and that makes somebody mindful. That means that they're aware of themselves and they're comfortable enough to do that, even if you know, the conversation doesn't go as deep as you thought. Or, you know, today we, we talked about suicidal ideation, you know, like we get into different topics and different intersections and, and it's been really cool. I've done about, I think three or four of them so far and, mm -hmm. and they have been very enlightening for me as a woman. So, so yeah, that's kind of how it came about. I love it. That was, I've I had a chance to tap into a couple of them. I even noticed that on today's edition, you had somebody from my favorite all-time basketball team in the entire <laughs> world, uh, Langston Galloway, on. And I was just mm -hmm. like, how connected is this woman? Like, she got business <laughs> on this stuff. But most importantly, it, I think that it's, from a transparency standpoint, is for me, when it hit home, it was, as far as this whole pandemic is concerned, when I saw the news alert that said, the NBA season is canceled after, like, basically shutting down tomorrow. I know that question. So, <laughs> it did. But from the standpoint, not necessarily that I was crushed because, you know, if you are from Detroit, you know that 2004 was a very great year for me. I love that team. We destroyed the Lakers in an easy five games, in my opinion. But... We ain't had that same championship caliber team like that since then. You know, we 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 got there and then it was like, no, LeBron, wait. No. <laughs> right. No. And you know, from that, I just I I'll root for anything that they do. If they if they win the game, if they go up by 10, like I'm just like, yeah. And then it's like, oh well, you know, maybe next year, right? But yeah. So I haven't really followed a hundred percent of basketball because of that lately, but what I will say is that when that got taken away, I was like, all right, this, this is real. Like mm -hmm. we got to go watch old games from 2000. Like this is, this is bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're going to push the last dance until they get back. Like they're pushing that Michael Jordan documentary. <laughs> to 
to give y'all something to watch. Okay, Listen. even um, but, but yeah, I I mean, in terms of like connection wise, I just want to say like a lot of the visibility that I have now, you know, I've been in the I've been in the work, you know, like. I've, I've worked with the Pistons, you know, I've worked with the assistant coach in terms of yoga, but it's not something that I'm always announcing. It's just things I'm doing. So Langston and I are connected also just via his wife, you know, um, they're very just down to earth people and they're very open and down to tap into the community. And one thing I'll say about Langston is he's always been open to anything in regards to mental health, talking about mental health. Um, and I think that he always does a, an amazing job. And today he touched on something that I wish I had as much. I wish I had the kind of reach that would allow NBA players to see what Langston was saying, you know, because essentially what he's been able to do is tap into the things that a lot of professional athletes neglect until they're out of their league, which is their entrepreneurship, their business on the back end, their family. Right. Like all of the things that really matter. And he was just able to express how grateful he is for this time and what it's done for his spirit and and just how he's good. Like he's been able to tend to the things that he didn't get an opportunity to before. I think a lot of people think it's easy when you have money, but people are human. And also, like as a black man, it's not not the same as when a white man gets money, you know, so having that understanding and. And yeah, it's been really cool. Just everyone has been on. I have been like so grateful and honored that everyone has agreed to to kind of tap in and be about it. Most definitely. I love yeah. it. And the fact that you are in tune with sports means we can slowly <laughs> tap dance into what the last dance was all about. But before I get into any of that, <laughs> um, yeah. I just want to give people a chance to understand like where you're from, your hometown, where you're from. And I know you said you teach yoga, things of that nature. So um, just kind of expound on like, you know, your career journey up to now. Yeah. So um, I'm originally from Inkster, Michigan. That's what most people close to me know about me. Um, Inkster is a small city out of Detroit. We're close I'm the youngest to you now. Wait a minute. That means we're close to you because we know that. <laughs> yes. Y'all are close to me. You do know that. Yes. Made it. It's like my, it's the thing that I'm, I'm proud of. Like, I'm very proud to be from Inkster, mostly because I got out of Inkster. Um, and I'm the youngest of four. And I, you know, my journey to yoga was really just rooted in health. Um, I grew up in a very like controlling, abusive environment. And when I was 11, my mom in a way like escaped that environment. And around that same time, um, I ended up getting sick, you know, and I was diagnosed with a chronic illness called Crohn's disease when I was 12 years old. Crohn's disease is an autoimmune disease. Um, the immune system attacks the digestive system. So I always describe it as like arthritis in the gut. Um, and, and it's just very painful, very debilitating. And just getting a diagnosis at any time in your life is, is very immensely challenging. But as a child, it's, it gets a little more complex because you know your brain doesn't even fully develop until you're 26. So when you're 12, and your whole life becomes about your health. It, it's it's daunting. It's definitely daunting. And when I was 19, I had an emergency surgery that left me on life support. And so what a lot wow. of people know about me 
or know of me, right, is like my scar. Like a lot of people know me, like the girl with the scar and the girl that does yoga. But, you know, I was so sick during that time. Like I was not tending to my well-being at all. I was just working a lot. And I knew I was sick, but I, I didn't want, I was in denial. Like I had been in denial for seven years. Like when you're a teenager, you just want to be a teenager. When you're a girl, you just want to be a girl. You already have like a period. You already have all these other factors in your life on top of family, you know, dynamics and, and the abuse that was taking place and just all of these different aspects. I ended up getting really sick and that surgery um, left me with an open wound. So I had, there were so many complications during the surgery that they had to leave me open. And so I healed literally from the inside out. And it took me, I was hospitalized for two months total. And I went home with the IV pole. I went home and my mom um, tended to my wound every day, every night. And the recovery process took about a year. And I was majorly depressed, majorly depressed. And I had very high anxiety because and, and here's the thing, I've been telling my story for like six years. And the more I tell it, the more precise I get. Because what I want people to understand is when you almost die and you survive it, you don't feel safe in the world. So like, forget all the abuse that happened 10 years prior to diagnosis. When you almost lose your life, you don't feel safe in the world. You feel like death is like around the corner for you. Um, because I woke up one day and that happened. It wasn't like I wasn't like, it, it just happened out of nowhere. And a little bit before my surgery, I had dabbled in yoga, but I hated it. And I hated it because I couldn't touch my toes. And I hated it because the teacher would say things like, now let go. And I'd be like, what am I letting go of? Like, there's so much shit to let go of that I need to let go of. <laughs> and there was never like a how, right? But the thing that attracted me to the yoga at the time was the teacher. And we would have class, I'd hate it, I'd loathe it. And then we'd go in the back room and we'd talk about energy. And that always stuck with me, it was like the energy part. And I went through my surgery and a year after my surgery, I, had, I became suicidal. I attempted to take my own life and I survived that attempt um, and I, they couldn't pump my stomach because of the surgery a year before and I survived. And after that day, I kind of had had to make my mind up that, you know, God was not calling me home anytime soon. And whatever this was that I was dealing with was something that I was going to have to like figure out. And quite frankly, like that was just what the mind that I had made up. So I remembered this yoga thing and I remembered like, okay, it helps with your mind and, and all this stuff. So I had like nothing to my name because I couldn't work. I didn't have a car and my car got repossessed, all this stuff. So I just Googled the nearest yoga studio to me and it's a Bikram yoga studio. And like for those listening that don't know what Bikram is, it's a 105 degree room. It's a 90 minute practice and it's, 26 postures done two times. I didn't know what Bikram was. I barely had known what yoga was before. Like, I didn't know. I just thought I was going to do yoga. 
And I literally was like, what did I just get myself into? Like my wound was almost fully closed, but it wasn't even fully closed yet. And I just was like in disbelief that I had done this, but I was already in the room and it was what it was. And I made it to like the 88th minute before I had to like leave the room. And that day, like something happened inside of me that I just, I felt like if I could get through that amount of time in that hot ass room, after everything I had just gone through that, it just showed me myself again. Cause I had been feeling so, I didn't want to be here. That's how disconnected I was. Like I did not want to be here. And when I went into that yoga class, I had like felt my breath in a different way. I had felt my body in a different way. And I had seen myself in a different way. Like instead of being at home, looking at what had happened to my body, I was in these bold postures and I was looking at the same body and it transformed me internally. And I, I remember like, I was just like teaching like $5 demos. Like I didn't have a certificate. Like I was just trying to share whatever it was doing for me. I was like, people got to know what this is. And then in 2016, so that was 2014, 2016, I finally decided like to become a teacher because I felt like what the yoga was doing for me was it was healing me from the inside out. It was it was taking whatever was broken and it was like putting it back together somehow, some way. And I knew I needed to be obligated to the practice, no matter what, whether I was a student or not. Like, I need to know this. I need to know it's in an, it's in an ins and outs. And so I went through a 200 hour training and um I became a teacher and I started just teaching random classes in the city because I knew no one was going to hire me. One, because when you get your yoga certification, they're like, you need experience. How do you get it without teaching at a studio, right? But also I had very much so a unique way of teaching where I just like how I'm talking to you, it's how I mm -hmm. teach. And in, in the yoga industry, yoga sometimes becomes people's personalities and it just wasn't happening for me. Like it wasn't, I wasn't some kumbaya, you know, like person, like yoga was a tool that I felt was helping me like survive in life. Like I didn't care about the Sanskrit or any of the politics in the yoga. I just wanted to share it. And so that's really what got me started um, in sharing. And if you want to know about the trauma-informed aspect, you can ask about that. But in terms of just not to be too long-winded, in terms of me getting to this point of actually teaching and being consistent, that's where that's the foundation of where it's coming from. So, I mean, all that's very important because a lot of people... I noticed the difference. I know it's kind of a trend. Kind of going back to what you were talking about with um, when it came to the inception of Mindful Men. Um, a lot of it was going, hey, brother, what's going on? How you feeling? Basically. And from what I saw with some of these live interviews, that's how they start talking. And they're not just saying, you know, shit chilling. It's like they let it all come out. Yeah. And you just kind of help them ease it out even more. And I think that's such a powerful tool because if you talk about, you know, black men versus black women, if you will, just to, as an example, women are more willing to share what they're going through than men. Absolutely. Right? 
And I don't know if it's just from a sake of belonging or community per se, but for me, it really wasn't until we embarked on this journey that I began to share and shed light on some of the things I was feeling, you know what I'm saying? And I know that, you know, Drill has his own story about that and can attest to that. But for me personally, you know, it was like, we we literally got to a point where we would check in with each other like every day, every other day. And I couldn't always understand like why my wife kept asking me like, how you feel, how you feel, how you doing, how you feel? I'm like, why you keep asking me that shit? Like, it's so annoying. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I'm like, like physically, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I'm physically good. I'm good physically. Yeah. But she was talking about hair. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Here, right? Like, here. One thing that made it that obvious, like, it's not obvious when I'm getting on these lives, but a lot of people need to understand I was raised by a Black man. Mm -hmm. And not only was I raised by a Black man, I was raised by a broken Black man. I was raised by someone that, used violence and abuse as ways of that was the way he showed love and I would say love is a skill that my dad never had and it's because no one ever gave it to him no one ever taught him and so and my dad has Crohn's disease we're the only two in my family I have a very I have a very my disposition towards him is very I have empathy for him and on the other edge of the of the spectrum I talk to these men and I realize like you have to have, you have to be given permission to feel, to feel your feelings. Where for women, mm-hmm. I actually think it's two extremes. I think that women aren't taught how to, not all women. I don't want to ever, ever speak as if I'm generalizing. I was never taught really how to like hone in on my emotions and like use my intuition. I was just taught that crying for me was acceptable and that, and that's cool. But as I got older, I realized, oh, I'm, my emotions are a little out of control. And I had to go to therapy in order to understand my emotions because it was always permitted for me to just let it out. And for black men, it's the complete opposite. And I literally, I shared this on the live today. I was just talking to um, my friend who's a black man and he was, you know, he was just getting curious about mindful men. He was like, what makes a man mindful? And I told him and he was like, when I bring up therapy, to my boys, they say like, it's for bitches. This is a 28 year old man in 2020. And when he's bringing up going to therapy, these men, grown men saying that that's for bitches. That, the fact that that is, it's still a stigma tells me that we have so much more work to do, but also like just asking somebody how they are and how they're feeling. You know, like what you're witnessing on the lives is them actually like asking themselves. And sometimes for the first time, you know, Armand was a great, um, Armand Rashad was a great interview. I, yeah. I know Armand on a professional level via Lululemon, you know, where we have to be on, you know, as ambassadors. Mm-hmm. I don't know Armand as the person, you know, and when he got on. I he, do. Yeah, he really let his, his walls down and he let me know how he really was. And ever since that interview, Armand and I have been connected. We have touched base. He touches base with me. He every time we talk, the conversation is is of, of value and of depth. And I think that just giving people permission and space and also a sense of safety, right? Like people need to feel safe in order to be vulnerable. And so that's what you're seeing is just they're finally asking themselves, 
you know, how they're feeling. And I think whatever we were raised around, like some things are great to take with us, but let's be honest, a lot of the shit, like we have to unlearn and Mm -hmm. rewrite for our babies so that our, our little black boys and our little black girls know that it is okay to share how you're feeling. You don't have to be strong all the time. Like that's Mm -hmm. not that you don't actually have to be like you're loved and you're cared for and it doesn't make you weak. It actually makes you 10 times stronger than anybody else really, you know, that, that can't do that. Man, I love you already. Like <laughs> you don't know it, but you about to be like one of my next best friends in real life. Um, <laughs> but um, I actually know our mom. We, uh, we grew up in some of the same circles as far as Wayne State University is concerned. Shout out to my alum. And um, you know, we, <laughs> We had a very interesting Rocky start because he, he joined the fraternity and I joined the fraternity. And, you know, you got the whole frat versus frat beef. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it was just like, you know what? Uh, I just can't. I just can't do this anymore. Like the frat versus frat thing really, really just doesn't matter. Um, but in regards to, you know, and Jarell, you can probably speak to this a little bit more. Um, I think that it's just very organic and crazy how, you know, you can kind of create those spaces over time. Um, I know that for me and you, you know, it was, I was looking back through some flashback. (laughs) um, You know exactly what photo I'm talking about too. But uh, we did a walk. I forget exactly what walk it was. I think it was either Race for the Cure or something. Um, I think it was the Heart Association. Yeah. Sure. And, uh, we were like in the same, we took a picture, like those like those whole college of engineering picture. And he was just in the back, just like the same little gentle giant, gentle giant, just like, you know, <laughs> I was in the front, you know, whatever. And I never knew from that moment, the type of relationship that we will have that will be so important, not just for us as black men, but mm-hmm. and not just us as brothers, but like for the culture, because I think that it's important that these type of spaces are embraced, that they're carried, that they're, you know, maintained over time. You know, you can have a moment where you don't talk to your brother at a time for a time uh, period, but it's important that you guys come back together and have those discussions because you never know what you may be going through and until you have that space. Um, A lot of men that I know, um, originally they weren't necessarily comfortable with talking with a woman about their feelings which is weird because you know you you want that companion you want that person um but they they just weren't comfortable talking with you know people person of the opposite like gender about what they were Mm -hmm. going through and you came with their platform and you make it look like Oprah who I got this you know what I'm saying (laughs) it's a beautiful thing yeah I mean here's here's my thing one thing is I think there's to just to what you're saying, like, I think one, like most men don't feel comfortable talking to women because they don't, you know, like you want to, you don't want women to think that you're weak, right? Because expressing how you feel is most, most of the time seen as a weakness. My thing of doing it, um, you know, my friend spoke something over to me, over me a couple, maybe like a year ago. And she told me that I was going to help a lot of men and I didn't know what she meant. I didn't, and I kind of was like, girl, I don't know, what what you talking about? 
And over the last two years, I've done a lot of work with men and it's been organizations bringing me in to work with men. Um, and it'll be like sometimes just real fun things. Like I did something with Lululemon where like the guys had a baseball game and then we did yoga after. And like none of these men have ever done yoga. It's totally vulnerable for you to be stretching <laughs> your body, the body that doesn't stretch. Half of them are drinking beer, you know, like. But one thing about me that I've realized is that I embrace, I believe like we, we all come from man and woman, which means that we all have masculine and feminine qualities. And I embrace both of, of those aspects within myself. And I also feel like it's just in, so important for us to, as men and women, you know, I've been, I have been guilty of being like, all men are the same, you know, like you get your feelings hurt, one too many times, you're like, they're all the same, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's so important to realize that everyone exactly has a story and everyone has, you know, has shit. And so it's also just presenting the opportunity to see like a different side to, to men, some men that you know, some men that you might not know, and just being able to see the human part of them. That's why it's me talking to them. That's why it's a woman and, and a man, because it's like, we're humans, like, let's talk. And some of these men, they don't even know me. Like Trey, I talked to a complete stranger today. He don't know me, but <laughs> there's, you know, when, when someone is energy, you know, like when you guys reach out to me, it's like no brainer. Cause you can feel the energy of wanting to help your community heal. And like you said, it's for the culture. Like that's at the root of it is for the culture at all times. That's why, you know, like at my yoga will never be my personality because like I do it for the culture. So it mm -hmm. has to make, it got to make sense. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So to that point, you, you brought up something and I just want to, I guess, kind of push the narrative here. So there's a bunch of different reasons black men don't prioritize their mental health, um, you know, embrace what they're going through. Um, so I would ask you, and you can elaborate why, true or false, do you think that, well, true or false, go ahead this way. Black men don't prioritize their mental health because they are scared to be vulnerable. I, um, I don't, I, false. False. That's like, I think there's something that happens before that part. What do you think I it is? Think, I, think, I think black men don't embrace their mental health because they're not aware that they have mental health. Mm -hmm. Like you, how can you be vulnerable to something? Like, how can you have vulnerability to something that you're not even conscious of? You know, I think That's some good. men are, I think mental toughness gets pushed more with men than mental health or mental wellness or mental illness. I think being mentally tough is push, push, push. So whether or not your mind is healthy or not is not is is irrelevant. It's whether it's tough or not. It's whether it it can take you know the pain you know. So right. I think before we get to vulnerability, there's a part that that there's a lack of awareness. You know everything like and you even said it too. You said like 
when your wife would ask you or your partner would ask you, you'd be like, well, physically I'm good. And I think that's another thing is that a lot of men, their value, you know, people talk about women's value being physical. I think men early on, their value from externally, people see as physical. Are you tall? You should be a basketball player. Are you large? You should be a full, you know, like we should utilize your physical attributes and and Mm -hmm. put them to work. And so I think that that, that's the, the first thing, because I think if men were aware of mental health and what, like, I think they would, I think they would be open to being vulnerable. But I don't know. You know, you know how many times I've been a football player? Like, you know, are oh, you a big fella? You should be a football player. It's like you could not have no. You have you could want to be an artist, and somebody is in your face talking about you should be a football player. Listen, because I kept a notepad and a pencil on deck. <laughs> Anytime I seen an episode of Dragon Ball Z, I'm like, I can draw that. Watch this, mm-hmm. or like, I can. I would see like, I remember one time when I was like, I was really into art. Maybe age like eight through I would say a good 13, 14. Yeah, and I really spent like a lot of time. I would draw like basketball players. I would draw, you know, anything that I saw. I would literally try to draw. Um, yeah. or I would try to read more things of that nature. I actually did play football for like one year and I technically used it just so I can stay physically active to play okay. basketball. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to that point though, I, I think you nailed it. And that's what I was trying to pick at here. A lot of times we see health and strength yeah, and that ain't it. <laughs> it's really mm-hmm. not. In fact, some of the toughest people can be you know or i would say some of the strongest people are those that know when to be their best vulnerable selves yeah as well as when they can use i guess their their mental toughness if you will so like they can kind of not necessarily switch it on and off per se but they're in control of what's going on in their mental i think those are some of the most yeah I They're think those are some of the most strongest people that you can encounter. And I'm still working at it. I'm working at it every single day. Um, yeah. But to that point, though, you know, I, I just think that if more people look into that, if more people are aware about mental health, they can be the best man they can be. They can be the best woman they can be. They can be the best husbands, fathers, uncles, aunts, sisters, brothers, wives, etc. If they just tap into, you know, what's mentally going on with them. Yeah. The same way we take care of ourselves during these times, you know, not just the physical part, take care of your mental health as well. <sighs> Strong as an ox, right? That's what they will say. And also, yeah. And I was just like, I want to say two things to what you just said. You know, health is, is the root word of health is heal. And to me, the strongest people are those that are just committed to their healing. Let's get real. Like some of our wounds are very, very deep. Like, and they take time to heal. They take years, sometimes take decades to heal. That's okay. As long as you're pursuing your healing. And I think um, without, I'm trying not to lose my train of thought, but just in a sense of like the switching it on and off, I think being in touch with how you feel is just always giving yourself space to feel those things. So like when you're in the work, you know, like some days, like, especially during quarantine, I always tell people like, 
I'm solid. Like I'm pretty solid because I've been in wor- like worser situations, but very similar to this. And I've just kind of like, I'm cool with this and I'm connected and I feel like I'm cool with this, but don't get it twisted. Every, I get two to three days where I drop off into the hell zone. That's what I call it, the hell zone. And what happens in the hell zone is all these childhood traumas that happen, all this shit starts coming up in me and I have to deal with it in real time. And let me tell you, it is ugly cries. It is like so much pain, but the next day comes and it's like a part of me is healed. So I think that just to your point of like being vulnerable, it doesn't always have to be in a public, place either like mm-hmm. I think that a lot of men can find space and maybe opening up just like you like journaling like I think journaling is super powerful because it's personal and no one can judge you the pen ain't judging you the paper ain't judging you it's you between you and you and then when you're ready you know therapy is huge because this person don't know you from Adam or from Eve can't judge you can't it's if there was any place to have a breakdown it's therapy it is a safe space. And I think it's important to keep cultivating these spaces. But you want to know what's even more important? To be seen. That you two are seen, right? That these men are seen. You know, like there's so many panels that get put together and it's like one black man gets put on it or two black men. No, I want, I want most of them to be men of color. Like they, this is where the resources are lacking. There's no need to keep promoting resources where, where they have them. So also being very like selfish about the space that we're creating. This is for brown and black people, period. Like, and feeling no way about it. Um, And making it clear for other brown and black people so that they don't get it twisted and they know that they can come in and they can, and they're in a safe space. So visibility, that was my little rant. Sorry. No, I would agree with that um, as far as vulnerability and, and how, as we, I would say, as we get older, you either open up to it or you kind of like take a detour from it. Like, I was just sitting here thinking about like, when were some of the times where growing up where I felt like some of my friends may have been vulnerable, but then the system failed them. So then that kind of allowed them to take a detour from being that, having that characteristic of vulnerability. So like, for instance, I can recall being in like elementary school and my friends may have had behavioral issues. So instead of coming in and saying, hey, what is the root of this behavior issue? What's going on at home? What's causing him to behave this way? They stuck them into, you know, the learning disorder class as a solution. They said, hey, you're just you're distracting the other 25 students in this class. You know, our solution is just put you in this class of 10 and one teacher would deal with the 10 of you. It was that type of thing. So I feel like it's not it's not necessarily like our fault. It's not everyone's fault that they either take one way or another, but it's like kind of like the situation molds them. And then also um, with vulnerability, I feel like it's something that is taught. Like I feel like a lot of our characteristics and behaviors are taught from um, our guardians or parents. So like we're taught like, you know, what to eat. We're taught, you know, how to submit to a corporation and go and get a check. Uh, we're taught these different things. Um, but just in our community specifically, um, our parents weren't open or were unaware yeah. of, you know, having um, a positive mental health or having um, relationships that um, positively progress their mental health. So I feel like that's an aspect of it, too. And like with our generation, we have to be 
you know, those trailblazers, I guess you could say, or the people who have the torch to let our kids know that, hey, this is okay to talk about this. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and I think I'm like, I don't know about y'all, but like, I'm so honored to be in that space because I feel like we're breaking a generational curse. I feel like we're, we're shifting the paradigm because once brown and black people heal, like it's a wrap, like it's the wrap for the world. Like there's not, once you are healed, you become unstoppable. And when I say healed, it's not a finished result. It's awareness. It's a knowing, right? That's what being mindful is. People always ask me, what does being mindful mean? It's a knowing. It's a knowing that you're doing something. And just to what you're saying, you know, this is where trauma and the conversations around trauma have to become a little more bold. Because what we're talking about, and and Jarell, what your story reminded me of is, like, I became trauma-informed in my yoga because I was building a yoga program at a nonprofit um, at Downtown Boxing Gym in the city. And I, I had an idea of, like, how to work with kids, but... I really wanted to like, I was about to build this program out. I really wanted to have all of my, not the knowledge I could have to really help these babies. And I went to this trauma-informed training and I learned all about what happens to the brain during early childhood development and what happens to the brain when the child, when a child experiences adversity, AKA trauma. And it blew my mind because it made me realize like, the yoga, like, is literally just a tool. It's just a, one of the tools, just like therapy, just like meditation, just like talking to family and friends. It's literally just a tool. It's no longer about that. It's about understanding what has happened to us and what that's actually doing to our brains and how, how that's sending us into chronic survival mode and how that's no, like, we're releasing stress hormones at a rate that typically you wouldn't which is causing um, health issues later on. So who has the highest level of like heart disease? Brown and black people. Who has the highest mm-hmm. level of diabetes? Guess what? We experience more childhood adversity. That's why. And that contributes to problems in your health later on in life. I got Crohn's disease, right? Like having that knowledge, knowledge is power. So you know, okay, I was abused when I was a child. This might be why like, I can't feel, I have no, I'm numb in my, like, it's not that simple, but I'm saying like having knowledge is key to healing as well. It's not as simple as some people are like, I can't meditate. I don't know what's wrong. And I, I, I let them know, like, you might not be ready to sit with your shit yet. You might have to acknowledge that you have shit first. Okay. In order to be able to actually sit and like be friends with it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it really starts there. And the trauma-informed care and just that knowledge, I feel like is is major key for for brown and black people considering our history and just everything that we've that we've had to endure and that we have to continue to endure. Mm-hmm. Now, and I want to touch on that because um, I'm a strong proponent that tra- childhood trauma is a real thing. Um, as a you know black man who grew up on the east side of Detroit. Um, I, I grew up in a very, very, when I come to find out later, even like as recent as Mother's Day, even, I came up in a very interesting transition in my dad's life. So for those that don't know, I'm going to just shed a little bit of light and I'll probably talk about this around Father's Day. But 
my father was a complete like for lack of better terms he was a complete drug lord <laughs> i found this out i would say in full detail like when i was looking for his obituary some years ago about his arrest at the um detroit metro airport and i was just like you had drug money on the floor of your car and they caught you with it. So you went to jail for five years. And the life you led before that was just a downward spiral of just male ego type behavior. You had to feel the need to be the man to basically short terms, be a pimp. I was just like, my dad did all this? How the hell did I become the man I am? Right. But I realized I was talking to my older, my oldest sister, who's the only one I talked to. And she was like, I'm grateful that you had the experience and you got the, the father, the version of your father that I didn't get, because that made you into the man you are. And I'm not going to say that my father and I had the best relationship because through the times we didn't, I, I remember even one time, you know, I was having an emotional moment and he was like, you're acting like a little bitch. And I was just like, my dad just called me. I didn't hear anything, but my dad just called me a bitch. You know what I'm saying? And that stuck with me for a while until like maybe the last Father's Day we spent together. And, you know, we just talked about our shit. Like everything from, why did you treat my mom this way? Why did you do that? Why did you do it this way? What did I do wrong? This, that, and the third. And we really hashed those things out. And to the Mm -hmm. point where it was just like, I know who this man is. This man gave up that lifestyle so he can raise me right to the best of his ability. And for that, I can't care about his relationship to my mom. I can only care that he took the time with me to get it as right as he knew. And it's not to say, again, it's not to say it was perfect, but because of that, I can progress and become you know, hope to God a, a better father when I have the opportunity, if I have the opportunity. And so, you know, for me, that's still trauma. And I remember even a couple of years later after he passed, I had a chance to meet my great uncle. And he said something to me that, that took me back there. And that's when I realized I didn't heal yet. He literally said, I, I went there and went in to give him a hug. And he went, um, well, don't hug me. Men don't hug. That's for sissies. And I looked at him and I was just like, you know what? I had like this Will Smith moment. Like, why you don't love me, man? You know, F you gonna be better than you ever been <laughs> this and the third. But like, that's the moment where I realized I could have reacted a whole different way. Sure. But I took it and I said, I know that's toxic behavior. That's not what a true this generation type of man is. And that's good. I was able to compartmentalize and say, you know what? That's trash. You're not accepted that until I'm until my brain. Like when my dad said, I'm acting like a little bitch. And, um, you know, for me, I was just like, all right, well, if I felt that way and I'm just now getting to the point in my late 20s, now in 30s, that I'm this way, what's everybody else going through? And you know, that's when I realized, you know, when Jarrell made that Facebook status, I remember in that, I think it was 
late summer, early fall 2017 when he made that status, I was like, oh, that's the conversation you want to have? DM me, bro. I'm, I'm, about to, mm-hmm. I'm about to add this conversation. And mm-hmm. we've been having it ever since. And so, you know, to that point, one of the things I found, and this is how we're going to transition, I guess. One of the things I found is that you have to find those common conversations with fellow Black men, if you will, um, Black and brown men. And one of the things that was on everybody's mind as of late is the last dance. And yes, it was, you know, the sports story of our childhood. It was everything we knew about, you know, what Kobe wanted to be, rest in peace, Kobe. But like, it's the reason why we grown to be attached to I would say the reason why black men are attached to sports because of what Jordan did for the game. Yeah. But what we didn't realize, and especially what I didn't realize and started to draw parallels to, is that you didn't see him. Like, you seen him, you know, on the court, but because of the lack mm-hmm. of access to him, like on social media, et cetera, unless you were up in the hotel lobby, you didn't see him. And the last dance really gave us the, you know, the the visuals to who he was, you know, that it wasn't the flu game. It was some shrimp pizza that it wasn't glam and all that stuff with the medals and championships. He got tired of microphones being at his neck and I don't blame you, but, and I I take it that you had a chance to tap into that a little bit. Um, So when it comes to, you know, athletes and you, you have a little, bit of experience when it comes to that obviously when it comes to athletes and I guess you know mental health you said something earlier about you know just because you have the money and the fame doesn't mean you're you know mentally basically not mentally at peace and so would you like to kind of just expound on that a little bit because we could probably have like a 10-part episode ourselves (laughs) could have a whole conversation about that just separately but one thing I'll say, and, and it's so interesting that the Jordan documentary ended up coming out. So in February, I was able to, I was working with the organization. I was doing mindfulness for a nonprofit organization and it was during All-Star Weekend. And like, I didn't really know what All-Star Weekend was. I just knew I had to go do this mindfulness stuff. And I ended up on a panel with Derek Rose talking about mental health. And when Derrick Rose opened up, like when he fin- when it finally got to him, he talked for a very long time. Like it was not, it no longer became a panel. It became almost like a moment for him to really get, get it out, right? And he shared so much. And I, I've always been a big fan of sports, but the biggest thing is like, I used to like think Derrick Rose was like the finest man walking the planet when I was in high school. Like I was, I liked him in that way. And here I am sitting next to him and he's expressing himself. And what he was sharing was so, he like was in tears. Like the level of vulnerability that was in the space was insane. And all it made me realize was like, and he was sharing things about, you know, just his childhood and how he grew up and like, how that doesn't ever really like leave you just because you get some money. Like you need intervention to like money does not offer healing. And I think that we talk about in our culture, like generational wealth, 
I want to hear about like generational health. I want to hear about the the real work. But that moment with D Rose made me realize like, wow, like these men aren't really allowed to be human. You know, like mm -hmm. they want to throw their whole careers away at some point most of the time because there's just not enough space. And then to watch the Jordan documentary, I wrote a speech on Jordan when I was in high school and I was a huge like fan of him and just his story. But guess what? I had no idea, but I had no idea how his dad died. I had no idea about any of that though. I only wrote about his accomplishments. I only wrote about how he didn't make his high school team. And, you know, and when I watched the documentary, it, it my brain was trying to wrap, like I was trying to understand how he could continue after no, after that loss, you know? And cause I know like my dad lost his mind when he lost his mama. So it's like, I'm like, how did he keep that, that stability? And so, you know, and then on the other hand, there's Ron Artest, you know, who's bringing, I don't know if you guys watched the Ron Artest documentary, but he's, you know, shouting out his psychiatrist, you know, at game, bringing his psychiatrist to the game. So I think that in terms of athletes, I definitely, this is just the intersections that I'm talking about, right? Like being a black man and you just happen to be an athlete, being a black man, you just happen to be a dad or a husband or whatever. I just think that there's not, there aren't enough resources and enough acknowledgement um, within the space. And for me in athletics, I think that it's really important because it's identity. Like a lot of these men are, their whole identity becomes the game. And when that ends, like we know it ends. It's not like it's a, a maybe thing. You might not know when it's gonna end, but you know it has an ending. And I don't think anyone ever preps these men for that identity crisis that they will go through, that they have to go through in order to get to the other side. And I also just don't think that um, anyone sees them differently from that beyond like the women in their life, their wife, their partner, and they're mm -hmm. really, really close family. Some of their family don't even get it. And I think that's a very isolated and lonely place to be. And it's sad. And then put put being black on top of it, put being a black man on top of it. Like that's a whole nother level. So I, I have a lot of empathy and compassion. And I also just want people to understand like money don't make the pain go away. Mm -hmm. Like money doesn't, I don't know why we think that. That's not a thing. When we get our minds right, money will flow easily. Money will no longer be an issue. When we get our minds right, our physical health will not be an issue because everything start, starts. We're not disconnected. People think like we have a body. No, you are your body. Like this is the only body that you get. You don't get in like you don't get to pick and choose which one you get. So there's no disconnect. And I think that um, because sports are so important to Black men. I do, I do hope to see in the next couple of years just transformation in mental health um, in terms of like the NBA, the NFL, the NFL, like in terms of um, professional sports. You know, I, I would say that, uh, mm, first, I just, man, it, it so first and foremost, I would just be completely honest here. And I, I said this before, you're lying if you did not look at every single cut scene of Michael Jordan. And every time he was on the court, you looked at his shoes to see what kind of shoes he got on. Oh, that's 13s. 
those elevens, mm-hmm. those are two, those are fours. Like I, I was that person. I was sitting here like, <laughs> I can't wait for this next cut scene. I want to see what Jay Z had on. But outside of that portion of it, yeah, to that point, it's just like, and I can say the same thing for my own family. I had a conversation with my aunt recently, and we had a conversation like we had never had before. And it was about the things that I went through. And she didn't know that. For whatever reason, though, I was just so open to just say, I went through this. I went through that. You know, my mom stabbed me in a damn leg. You know what I'm saying? And it was just like, I didn't know your mother put you through all that. And you're at where you're at now. Like, you're you're an engineer. You do this in a third. You you know, how in the hell did you do these things? I was like, because I didn't have a choice. Right. That was my survival mode at the time. But I knew that eventually I was going to have to talk about my, talk about my things. Right. And once I had the space to do that, once I found a mental health coach, once I, you know, pursued, you know, just being more, I think the biggest lesson I learned through all of it is, you have a voice you have words use them and no matter what comes out if it's something you need to say don't feel sorry about saying it just say it because the worst thing you can do is not say it and the moment goes by and now you're stuck because you didn't say it at that one time right that's a very scary place to be in yeah i think i and not to get you all i think that takes a lot of courage and i think i think again like sometimes we it's your willingness to say the honest things to yourself. If you can be honest with yourself, you can be honest with anybody. Anyone that isn't able to be honest with somebody else is, ha- is struggling being honest with themselves. Mm-hmm. That's just that. There's no one in the world, unless somebody like has really got you tied up, there's nothing that could prevent you. You know, like I used to be afraid to speak up for myself because I was abused when I was little and I was taught that when I spoke up for myself, that meant punishment. So growing up, I like yeah. when I became an adult woman, I didn't speak up for myself. It took the awareness to be able to. And then just to just to the other thing that I just always put into just all my people, men, women alike, is just like, I'm grateful that you went through all that with your mom and you came out a good person. Not you became an engineer, not be not you became a husband, not all these identities, right? No. Right. Exactly. You be you came out a good human. No matter what you do in life, whether you cook at the pizzeria or you an engineer, like you're a solid human. And I think, to be honest with you, I think a lot of times we get caught up in in the identity piece. And that's why I say like yoga isn't a personality. Like being an engineer isn't your isn't a personality. It's something that you just happen to do. You're a good person after all of that. That's the that's when you can go through hell and come out softer and more gentle and like better, that's somebody to be worried about. That's the person I'm like, okay, that's a, that's somebody, that's a fire starter. That's somebody that's willing to break, break the curse. That's somebody that's willing to take on way more than an assignment at work could ever challenge you to do. So I just want to speak that over you and anyone that's listening that, you know, like your identity is you. As, when when all the other stuff falls, you know, is you. 
And I appreciate that because that was a part of that discussion with my aunt. It was like, at the end of the day, I mean, yes, I went, you got this degree. Yes, I went to do all these things. Yes, I joined the frat, whatever it may be. I just wanted to be my best, happiest self. Yeah. And if that just meant that um, for the sake of sanity, that I make that little boy proud. Like, I remember I went through a bout of depression at the end of 2016, going to 2017, because I quit a very high-paying job, blah, blah, blah. And I, I went home. I went to, my mom left a, a photo album at my house. And I went through the photos, and I saw this little black boy <laughs> sitting on the porch with a Pistons hat on. And uh, at one point, he had this weird flannel shirt on. I don't know. I still don't know where I got the shirt from, but... Yeah, I guess it was comfy. But um, I looked at that little boy and he was just smiling his ass off. He was just so damn happy. And I remember uh, some of the times I was the most happiest is when I was, one, when I was that little. And then two, whenever I was around water. So when I got out of that bout of depression, the first thing that I did on that Father's Day is I went to the water. I went to uh, Mariner Park over on the east side. And I just sat there and I thought back about my dad. I thought about the things that I've been through. I thought about, even though I don't have the job that I want as an engineer, that I'm still standing, I'm still strong, I'm still here and I'm still irrelevant. And to me, that was just like, whew, cool. Freedom. It's freedom when you're not attached to things outside of you, when you know who you are, like, and when you're okay with that. And sometimes, you know, you do, you have moments. These, these aren't, I don't ever want to make it seem like it's just like you're either one way or you're the other. No, it's just like at your core self, you know, like I'm good. Yep. And that was, a lot of people don't got that. And that's why we in the work that we're in because yeah, when all of this said and done, like, are you okay with yourself? Mm-hmm. So I'm, absolutely. I am completely waiting for uh, the Last Dance Part 2 featuring Drill because, you know, Drill <laughs> is one of the most quiet individuals <laughs> that I thought I met in my life. I thought I met in my life. What does that but mean? <laughs> was, good question. Glad you asked. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief because, again, we could do this all day and I wouldn't have a problem with it, but I'm pretty sure we'll be busting out in the yoga at 9 o'clock with you. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, like that was the Jarrell I knew in that picture or ahead of time. I was like, this guy is always so quiet. He seems cool as hell, but he's always quiet. Uh-huh. And then when we started connecting and just vibing and all that stuff, you had so much to say. And I was just like, who is this man? <laughs> I don't even know you. Yeah. <laughs> That's that same space. Yeah. And, yeah, and yep, I was. Yep. And I was thankful for that because I was like, that's the voice that's going to help us have these conversations. Mm-hmm. And that's the voice that's also going to push me to be like, well, who can we, who can we find to help us continue this conversation? And to, and to that point, I just want to ask, um, since you watched The Last Dance, I'm going to make some assumption that you own at least one pair of gym shoes in your closet. Yeah. Okay, good. Do you have a pair of Jordans? No. Have you ever had a pair of Jordans? They're not my style. They're not what? my style. 
Oh, I like a good like Air Max. Okay. Nike. Basically, keep it real. I have a Yeezy. I have one pair of Yeezys. I have some Pumas. I and in all actuality, y'all, like I own more high heels than I do sneakers. And people that's good. Yeah, people think that's people think yogis are like we're hippies. I'm not a hippie. Like you can't ever make me one. I'll never become one. <laughs> um, but no, I don't have any. I don't have any Jordans. Well, what's your favorite gym shoe that you own? I have flipped Jordans before. I have sold them. <laughs> I bought them and sold them. Because I, I know their value. But um, oh, what was your God. question? I'm sorry. What is your favorite pair of gym shoes that you currently own? Oh, it probably is my, they're just my basic white Nike Air Maxes. They're my favorite because ain't that I wear them what they go with. Fair. Yeah. I respect it. Thank you. So to wrap up, I guess I would ask the last question. I can ask you so many, but to that point, if you had to give kind of a closing argument for, you know, how can, you know, how can women help men be them best selves? But I guess I'll go a step further and say, how can we as a culture help black men to be the best selves in short the the very first thing is like work on yourself like work on yourself you know i i shared with you like i thought all men were the same right that's an internal projection that's something that happened to me right like my experience with them right and then we project it and we write stories about people so the first thing i say is like focus on you mind your business that's the first thing we can do as a culture right because everyone is enduring no matter what you may have made up a story about a person there's something that that is happening in their life or has happened that made them that way and and so mind yours the second thing is to exercise empathy you know empathy and i always try to approach things like i don't understand so that i can gain understanding um and and yeah and Honestly, just having the conversations within your within your circle, because I feel like we're the ones doing like we have a little bit of a larger platform. We're having a little bit broader conversations, but so much change has happened in just my one to one conversations or my small group conversations. And it's just been the willingness to have them, you know, and stand your ground. Like if, if you know about trauma, if you know, if you know this shit is tearing us down and keeping it held, holding us back, speak boldly about it. And, and don't be worried because some people aren't going to, they're gonna be like, no, that's, that's some bullshit. That's for bitches or whatever. You have to stand your ground and you have to really, that's the only way we're going to push it forward. It's the only way we're going to make the impact that we're trying to make. Listen, so many keys. Like, Amen. I feel like... <laughs> I just want to like just bug you every single day for the rest of my life. Like, <laughs> like we gotta do like a part two. Like, absolutely, absolutely. And I appreciate you guys. Like, just for I always say, like, just for seeing me. You know, like I've been in the work for a minute, and so it's always affirming when um, you know people reach out and want to talk to me. You know, I want to connect. I want to how I can support you, how you can support me, and again, how we can push it push it forward. So I appreciate y'all for being who you are, for sure. Listen, that's like the best, blackest compliment in the world. Just be like, I see you. 
literally <laughs> to be seen. That's the best shit. Like <laughs> that. Like, and I think we need to do that more often with each other. Like, it's just like I see you. Like I, I, I always say, like acknowledgement is huge. Just acknowledging somebody That's is it. huge. Oh, absolutely. Listen, I see you. I appreciate you. Appreciate you are literally right Thank here. Thank you so much. And I, I, I don't know how we're going to do this again in real life, but I am certain that there is a way because there is God. There you go. Yeah. I gave you some it gospel today. <laughs> <laughs> but again, we appreciate you. We love you. We appreciate you and all that good stuff. If people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Adrian Moses, um, or you can visit my website, adriamoses.com. You can email me at yoga by Adria. And I have a Twitter that I try to prevent people from following, but that is Adria J Moses. And that usually throws people off, not enough. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, no, but yeah, those are the platforms I'm most active on. Connect with me, DM me, all the things I love to connect and yeah i appreciate y'all again for real no doubt thank you so for this discussion and all the other discussions in the world make sure you check us out at www.mentalmatterspod.com um we are on all versions of social media facebook twitter (laughs) and instagram (laughs) and you can stream us on soundcloud spotify our heart radio and all of those things so again make sure y'all check us out and we love y'all. Enjoy. You got anything to Um, Just continue to stay safe. Uh, Listen. Continue to practice discipline and continue to just always progress your mental health. Anyway, read books, watch documentaries, take time for yourself. Anything that encourages you to continue to progress. That's what I would say. And listen to Big Gretch because she will beat your ass. That's all I got. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> We love y'all. Stay up and we done.